This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast. And today I'm talking with Peter Garderforce, who is uh, one of our speakers in our summer school. And Peter, you um, presented your, your work in generalizing a theoretical framework that's called conceptual spaces towards language. Um, so what's this notion of a conceptual space exactly? It's a model of how you represent knowledge. I mean, it's a, I'm a cognitive scientist and I, I want to understand... In, in some sense, how our minds represent knowledge. And we have different traditions. I mean, you have the symbolic approach of the early uh, AI, and then you have the neural networks. My uh, conceptual spaces is in something in between, because I work with geometric structures, with, with uh, metrics, distances, vectors, and, and that kind of notions to, to model uh, uh, different kinds of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So can you, can you give me an example of that? Well, the normal example I use is the, is the color space. Mm-hmm. Uh, we perceive colors, but we organize colors along uh, three dimensions. I mean, there is the U, the color circle going red, uh, blue, green, yellow, and so on. And then there is the dark and, um, and light. And then there is the intensity going from gray. So there's the three-dimensional space. And and that's how we perceive colors. And, and it's fairly well established in psychophysics that, that we have this spatial arrangement of, of colors. Mm-hmm. So, but now, in some sense, I could say, well, uh, if I talk about an, an, an object having a certain color, like an apple being red, then this apple might have a number of properties. So it, it will be round, it will have a certain taste, a smell, a color, and so mm-hmm. on. So how do I bring that together in a conceptual space? Well, one of my key notions is that of a domain. I mean, we have several domains that we organize the knowledge. Color is one, size is another, shape is a third, temperature, and, and so on. We have a lot of, some of them are based on perception, some of them are based on action, some are based on our social uh, grounding mm-hmm. in the society. So uh, there is this general notion of domain that that mm-hmm. is used to sort up the, the information. So, mm-hmm. so you would not so much see it as, let's say, dimensions spanning this space, but a number of domains, or yeah, is that equivalent? It, it, each, each domain con- could consist of a number of dimensions, and color domain is three-dimensional, okay. and taste dimension, mm-hmm. taste domain is four or five-dimensional, uh-huh. yeah. So are these domains like a, a Kantian prior, you're just born with it? Uh, partly, I mean, it's uh, my, my theory is neo-Kantian, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you really want to bring in the philosophy. Kant said that we are born with space and time. I say that we are born with, dis- we are disposed to have uh, representations of space, we learn time much later. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, there are much, many domains that we're, are dependent on us being in a culture and learning to discriminate uh, new things and so on. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're, our set of domains are expanding as we, as we grow up in a, a society. Okay, and they so can change over time. So <laughs> it's a mixture, if you Want. It's a mixture. So, there's a, there's a, so do you, is there then really a, a, a defined set of prior domains? No, no, okay. no, no. I mean, we are born with certain sensory organs mm-hmm. that that determine some of the basic domains, mm-hmm. like color perception, like perception of heat and mm-hmm. uh, the tastes and, and 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 so on. But on top of these, we build a number of domains. Mm-hmm. I mean, we extract other other types of uh, information. Okay. For instance, I mean, I I. I I have been emphasizing the, our perception of forces. We are quite good at seeing forces in mm-hmm. pe- people's motions and so on. Right. right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now we have our domains. Mm-hmm. And then you say, look, if I now see an apple, 
Then I have a number of domains. I might have a visual domain and an haptic domain an olfactory domain mm -hmm. uh, and a taste domain. And now across these domains, apples t are a set of data points in that multidimensional space. Mm -hmm. So I have a cluster of data points and I say, all these data points together, this cloud of data points, this is now Apple. Yep. This would that, be the it's, idea. it's a point in a very high dimensional space, right. but the space is organized along a number of domains. Right, so. exactly. But now, would there be a way to, let's say, uh, reorganize that space? Like, for instance, you might at time, you might sometimes discover that, let's say, Santa Claus doesn't exist. So suddenly, uh, one organizational element of my reality is sort of has disappeared, and now I have to reorganize all my data. So how, how does that work in a conceptual well, space? First of all, you can add new domains. You can learn about apples having nutritional value or something like that. Mm -hmm. But what happens quite often in learning new things is that you change the importance of domains, which are the most important in, in making the classifications. Mm -hmm. uh, so in, in biology, maybe the behavior of an animal was uh, more important uh, when you classify something as a fish, but then came the biologists and say that now it's the skeletal structure or how you feed your uh, kids or whatever. Mm -hmm. Other variables that are more important in, in uh, zoological uh, classification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but then I was more worried about the case if I lose a domain, not about adding domains, but if I lose one. That's why I thought about Santa Claus. Right, yeah, so, but Santa Claus is not a domain. I mean, it's, yeah, a, it's a fi know, fictional, but, fictional object. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know of any good examples of losing domains. So, yeah. Well, <coughs> imagine that, that I believe that, uh, let's say, objects move, physical objects move in the world because they have uh, intentional states. Yeah. And then I discover that actually stones don't have intentional states. Now, suddenly, my world... Frame, the way I frame the world is changing. Okay, I would describe that as uh, as you the domain that maybe not disappear, but you assign it a very low value. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you, it becomes a zero in your in your concept uh, uh, classification. I mean, to take a, an example from from um, chemistry, you had uh, some idea of the caloric uh, mm -hmm. dimension that was used to classify chemical uh, stuff, and then uh, suddenly the, there was a revolution in chemistry, and the caloric uh, dimension totally disappeared. I mean, right. you, you can find examples of that in the history of science. Mm -hmm. In the history of human perception or in human classification, it's maybe more difficult to, mm -hmm. to find such okay. changes. <laughs> so, so now I, I have this, this cloud of points in Apple space, and um, now if I understand your, your proposal, then you say, and, and if you want, the center of gravity of that cloud of data points is now my prototype of an yeah, apple, yeah. right? Yes, and, and that cloud is, I, I make the assumption that it's a convex region. I mean, a concept uh, apple corresponds to a convex region, meaning that for any two points in the region, all points in between are also there. And that is very useful in, help, in uh, helping us understand how we can learn concepts. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. To, to have to have this notion of convexity, but but it does mean that that you're in, that you clearly have this, a very empiricist view on on prototypes and concepts that are really derived from <coughs> if you want data points obtained from the world. Ye yes and no. I mean, it's empiricist, and once you have the domains, the it's it's. Uh, uh, data-driven how you divide the spaces into into mm -hmm. regions, but the domains are well, the neo-Kantian position that they are partly given, partly learned. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. but now how should I think about the development of these? Imagine I want to add a new domain. This so the discovery of a new domain could be the result of just adding data points to my my um, conceptual space and discover that I cannot organize these data points anymore, and I have to say, aha. I should now assume there's another domain. Yeah. So so how how does that work? How do you go from single observations and their accumulation 
to this decision, okay, new domain? Um, that's normally tough for an individual. I mean, here in, 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 in our society, we have scientists who say that we need in this dimension, this domain, in order to understand the difference between this, this and that. I mean, so uh, I... Um, uh, you can you can do it as an individual, but it's it's very tough. I mean, you're, you're living in a culture where there are there are new ideas about what domains you mm-hmm. you need to understand something. Right, but now, do you do you see this in the same in relation to let's say the standard notions of assimilation and accommodation that, that Jean Piaget would talk about in development? Um, you can interpret it in, in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did never say anything about how these processes work. Uh, sure. I mean, he didn't have any model of uh, right. assimilation accommodation. Mm-hmm. Assimilation would be the just collecting data yeah. points and accommodation would be changing the space, I mean, yes, the structure exactly. of the underlying space. Right, exactly. So I can model the, these processes that way. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. but now at the core at the core of your and this is also what you said earlier at the core of your your approach is really a notion of a metric a topology and also a quantification of similarity yeah right so can that really generalize to let's say all different levels of of let's say concepts uh, no that's a good question because uh, for our con- our concept classification is very much dependent on our perceptual mechanism. That, that's the basic classification. But then we can introduce more abstract concepts, mm-hmm. different means, and in particular via language. I mean, you have mathematics and uh, and and uh, in, in law, you introduce new concepts by definitions. I and mean, we use language to, con- mm-hmm. to construct new concepts. Mm-hmm. And there you may get out of the geometric constructions. I mean, I don't know if I can apply my, my methods there. Okay. But uh, they, they are dependent on on being mm-hmm. grounded in these more low-level, uh, low-level right. concepts, you can't start from the bottom by by mm-hmm. de- defining concepts. Okay, you have so to ground them in some kind of right. some kind of perceptual mm-hmm. uh, domains. Okay, so so you're saying the conceptual space is exposed if you want to both feed forward or bottom up influences <coughs> perception yeah. sensation and top-down influences like high-level symbolic systems related to language. Yeah, and. In some sense, what you're saying is that what is most clear for you at this point in time is how this feed-forward component actually operates. Yeah. And then the top-down element is sort of for the future. Yeah. yeah? Well, but I have one area that I think is very useful to create new concepts is by using metaphors. Mm-hmm. So if, I mean, to take an example from science, when you introduce the notion of electricity, you, you have these notions of current and voltage and so on, new dimensions that you don't perceive. Mm-hmm. And in order to understand how they work, you can then compare electricity with water running or, or mm-hmm. whatever, and you, you get some kind of grounding in a perceptual mm-hmm. uh, domain in that way. But right. the, the electrical uh, dimensions, they live on their own in, in, mm-hmm. in one sense. So you can formulate them mathematically. Right. Yeah. But now if you go to domains like let's say machine vision, there there are lots of methods around for data association. Right? Yep. So yeah. these are basic different kinds of, of, of methods, um, adaptive filtering methods and what have you, that try to explain how you can bring data points to that together in high dimensional space. Is that an, a, a rather direct expression of your conceptual space notion or is there, is there a difference? Well, you can, you must distinguish between technical solutions uh, to of dimension re- uh, reductions. I mean, you have, you can have lots of data sets and you can use multidimensional scaling or principal component analysis and so on to reduce and pr- pick out the most important dimensions. But that's a technical solution. Then you have have the more biological solution uh, wh- where you really try to connect the dimensions to some kind of a perceptual mechanism or to your motor or motor systems or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever. I mean, and that's two different me- me- methods. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
All right, but they're not necessarily. You could imagine that any of these, some of these methods would be rather directly implementing these notions of a conceptual space. Yeah, yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. so there's no yeah, fundamental no, problem there. No, no, it's okay. just a question of uh, how how biologically realistic you want to be in your imp implementation. Right, so. exactly. So then. Um, <clears throat> Now, so so now now we have sort of we have this idea of a conceptual space, and you've been working on that for for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. And today in your presentation, you were emphasizing two, let's we want now extensions of this framework, right? So on the one hand, you wanted to capture a notion of action, because so far you you had looked more or less a static concepts yeah, yeah. like apples. And on other you want to go to language. So l let's start with action. Well, so I, I I want to go to language as, oh, okay. as, as kind of uh, application of, mm -hmm. of these two. I mean, I, I want to use conceptual spaces to model the, the cognitive representation of actions, and mm -hmm. I want to use them to model the cogn cognitive representation of events. Mm -hmm. What? How, how do we think of uh, events? What is the structure? Just like we have in, discovered a three-dimensional color space, I want to un understand what is the action space of our, our, our in our minds. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in a sort of boneheaded way, um, which I usually tend to follow, I could say, well, it's no big deal. I mean, also action I might be able to classify in some high dimensional space. Uh, let's say the different limbs involved, yeah. or whether it is just uh, between agents or it's a single agent or an action on an object or whatever, right? So, mm -hmm. so, so why is that straightforward generalization not enough to classify action? What's missing? Well, what kind of data do you start from? I mean, you, you, uh -huh. you can get a lot of data points about the human, human body moving, mm -hmm. but that's a very high dimensional set. You have to reduce the data somehow. And you can do use, as I said, just technical ways of doing it. But you can also use data from psychology on, on how we present perceive actions. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there are experiments showing that we have a kind of hierarchical representation of our bodies. I mean, there is the main body, then we have arms and, and legs, and we have uh, forearms and lower arms and uh, upper arms, and, mm -hmm. and we have hands and fingers. I mean, you have a hierarchical representation. Mm -hmm. And an action is a, is a, is a movement in this, uh, in, in this hierarchical mm -hmm. um, structure. So it's, it's a fairly high dimensional vector, mm -hmm. or uh, dynamic vector that okay. represents. And you need a, a, a more condensed way of, of uh, understanding what an action is. Okay, I, so, I think that our, mm -hmm. my, our brains need that kind of reduction. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, right? Because that would mean that you're saying, well, the notion of conceptual space is like a core representational engine, which is modality independent. And then dependent on the perceptual filtering, mm -hmm. I can now exploit this mechanism in different yep. ways. Yep. Right? So yep. this would mean for action that you're saying, well, to map action into a conceptual space, it's basically how I filter action. Yes. So I should maybe not look at action in, in static terms, yeah. but I should look at more at, at its dynamical properties. Exactly. So, so how, I mean, how am I going to do that? I mean, if you if you see a person walking, I mean, take walking as a uh, typical example here. You don't care about the clothes of the person. You don't care about if it, whether it's hot or cold. You care about the movements of, of, of the person. So you abstract away a lot of, of the, the domains. And what remains in, in my mind is that you look at what are the forces that the person exerts on his or her own body parts. So I see an action as a pattern of, of, of uh, forces. That's mm -hmm. my, 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 my reduction of, of um, uh, the domain for, for, for actions, okay, but to, to focus on the forces. Okay, so. so now, so also you showed in your talk that, for instance, humans actually need very f little, few cues yep. to extract motion, right? Like biological mo movement. And it's also has been shown by others, like geese, uh, Martin yeah. Geese and other people. Um, 
So, so how does that help me to get to a notion of force? Well, I mean, first of all, these examples, I mean, it was Gunnar Johansson who started with this patch-like technique. You only right. put small lights on the joints of your body, and, and that's enough. The, the, the information you get to identify actions, and you identify them extremely quickly. I mean, it takes 200 milliseconds to see mm-hmm. what kind of action it is. It helps because it, it shows you that all the other features are not necessary. I don't, you don't have to see the surface of the person moving. You don't have to see the color. All the other features are gone. So you see the kinematics. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you could say, okay, this kinematics, that is, uh, that is um, uh, what you perceive in an action. But I go one step further and say that, no, it's the changes of the kinematics. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, if you talk mathematics, it's the second derivative mm-hmm. that bring out the, the um, uh, forces. Mm-hmm. And I would say that when we identify an action, it's more uh, using the forces give us mm-hmm. a, a more coherent mm-hmm. and a simpler representation of actions right. than looking at mm-hmm. kinematics. Um, okay, so this is interesting, right? So uh, I want to say, look, we, we have to have a direct perception of change in the yep. kinematics. Yep. That's one thing. That's a second derivative. And the direct perception of that change you call a force. Yeah. But if I would look at that from, let's say, an engineering perspective, I could say, hey, wait one moment, but that would not map necessarily onto the forces I'm really exerting on the degrees of freedom of that walking human, right? So so um, how do I relate these two now? Okay, that that's a, a good question because you have the perceptual you have the perceptual uh, input when see somebody walking and then you can exert the forces on, on the body limbs. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have the kinesthetic experiences of your, of your muscle control. Uh, mm-hmm. And you, you know that you have to stretch your arm in a certain way to, to push a door or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm making a tacit assumption here that, that these two systems map onto one another. Mm-hmm. This is basically like when I understand what you're speaking, what you're when you're talking, I'm somehow representing how you produce the sounds, but I also have to map them on, on how I produce the sound. Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of, of ma- perception and motor action uh, mapping. Yeah. Right, okay. But that would mean I would have great difficulties to understand the walking pattern of a bird because the bird has a rather different kind of body than I do, Yeah. at least according to me. So now, now my the, the interpretation, the grounding of of the forces that you call them, I observe, will be difficult. Yeah. So how do I uh, circumvent that problem? Well, we understand the movements of other other animals less right. than we we do understand ourselves. So there there is this generalization problem. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I mean, once your your brain has learned to extract the second derivatives of movement, mm-hmm. you can you can then see the patterns in movement. I mean, you can mm-hmm. see that the patterns of fl- sparrows f- flying are mm-hmm. similar. I mean, they have much quicker um, wing, wing flapping leads. than yeah. if you do look at an albatross flying, where it's yeah. very slow and de- mm-hmm. much more forceful uh, wing flapping than in, in a sparrow. So mm-hmm. there are differences in the, in the patterns, mm-hmm. even in, in birds, and we can learn to identify them. Right. <laughs> but now, wouldn't there be another way to interpret this where we say, well... What we really learn to classify are these derivatives. And we can call them, let's say, kinematic dynamics, something like this, or kinematic change. And these changes will, in the end, be brought about causally by forces operating on degrees of freedom. But from a perceptual perspective, I don't care about these forces. I care about kinematic change. So, So what would be wrong with just saying, look, why don't we call this kinematic change for now? Um, It's a bit of a tough question because now we've been talking about biological movements as mm-hmm. the only type of, of actions. Right. But uh, 
we humans are not very good. Well, we are good Newtonians in one way that we can we can do these second derivatives, but our minds are also full of other types of forces, like in social interaction. I mean, I, I know that somebody is my superior; he or she has a force, can control my actions. Uh, uh, I know that I'm attracted to a certain woman, and that's we describe attraction as a as a um, force as mm-hmm. well. So we in, in our understanding of what causes actions Uh, Mm -hmm. there are other types of forces than Mm -hmm. the the traditional newtonian forces Mm -hmm. that's why i want to use forces rather than just the the movements the kinematic or dynamics involved in in biological motion but that's interesting right because Mm -hmm. then what your what the prediction could be say look our our perceptual systems as applied to, let's say, many different phenomena, different levels of complexity in the world, are, if you want, assigning a notion of force. They they are just inventing, let's yep, say, a, yep. a, a pseudo-causal relationship yep, yep. In the, uh, behind the change in the world yep. we observe, which can be completely, you know, beside the real causes of, of what we sure, observe. Sure, sure. I mean, would, they, you, would that, that be... Uh, that, that's a good interpretation, because mm-hmm. our brain is adding these... Let's call them theoretical variables or yeah. hidden variables. But this is like just like in visual perception. I mean, our eyes are adding the contours of objects. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in, in the, on the retina there are no contours, uh, but our brain is adding that in the interpretation exactly. of the of the world. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we are looking at an action, we are adding the forces as mm-hmm. a kind of contour, if you like, exactly. of the of the um, uh, perception you it have. It would be like and, a dynamic contour. It's right? a dynamic contour, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Great. So then that means we should not get too confused about this notion of force. No, right? no, and, and not, and not, you shouldn't restrict it to the physical exactly. force. Uh, no. but, but, but there's an interesting prediction there, right? Because it really means that this might be a way in, in which the brain is also imposing an interpretation of the world. And this also, and by virtue of that, that we are so good in recognizing bi- biological motion with minimal cues. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, since you mentioned Kant earlier, I mean, mm-hmm. he was saying that we can't help but seeing causes and effects. And I say we can't help but seeing forces. I mean, that's part of right. of, of doing the um, causal effect uh, relation. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's that's very good. So now, so when we have an idea about how to deal with, with, with motion, uh, perception of action. Uh, but in some sense, it's it's more like a classification, right? Because now we have these changes in, in posture, let's say. I change my posture. I call this walking. And it has a certain gait, and then you say, "Well, but and, and I can detect and classify it because I know how this this gait these gait was change over time, right? That I lean on one leg first and the other, yeah, and so on. Yeah. But then I could say, "Yeah, but that's not action because for to talk really about action, there there must be an intentional component in this. This is just movement. So how do we get from movement to action?" No, I don't. Okay, that's a philosophical point. I mean, you, you, some philosophers would say that an action involves a, a, a an intention. I don't mm-hmm. use that. I don't restrict actions. The notion of an action to intentional actions. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, um, no, I, I don't. I mean, so I, I have a more general maybe. The term is not appropriate, but that's how I use it. Uh, okay. Yeah. No, look, I'm I, I not necessarily going to bicker yeah. over it. I just want no, to understand no, okay. Okay. why yeah. do you saw a division there between, let's say, movement pattern action, but basically you say, look, for me, this is, as long mm. as we're changing the body, yeah. that's what I want to recognize. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. So now, now we have a way to, let's say, directly perceive features of movement so that we can map them in the conceptual space. Now, what are the domains of that conceptual space to, to organize representations of action? Yeah. 
So, so what are the domains? Oh, the domains are, are the force patterns. I mean, they, they, uh-huh. these are the forces. They, they can be complicated because you have a, a body moving as a complicated mm-hmm. structure of, of, of forces. So it's, it's a pattern. But the domain is still this more general notion of, 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 of force. Mm-hmm. And, and, and my claim is that when we classify actions, I shouldn't say it's only that because there, are, there could be constraints coming from other things. Um, if I hammer something, I use an object. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I can't be hammering with my nose. I can be hammering with my hand, but that's a kind of metaphorical use mm-hmm. of hammer. Hammer means that that kind of that kind of action is involving an instrument. So it's constrained by having an object that mm-hmm. functions as a, as a hammer. I mean, right. Yeah. Maybe okay. not the best example, but uh, mm-hmm. something in that direction. But then, still, what are the domains? I mean, what's the dimensionality of this space? Because is it like the limbs I'm using? Is it the, the direction of movement in some some Cartesian coordinate system? Um, what are these core domains? Is it body types? Okay, I, we've been talking mainly about uh, biological motion, but there, I mean, a car has a sort of uh, pattern for, force. Uh, you can accelerate and mm-hmm. decelerate the car and so on. And there, of course, in, in physics, there are, there are generators of mm-hmm. forces. I mean, motors or muscles or, 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 or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, but I think that when we perceive actions, when we categorize action, we extract from that. I mean, a a robot walking has mm-hmm. a t- totally different system of generating the the uh, forces than a human walking, mm-hmm. but we would still classify it as the same action. Mm-hmm. That means I can. Uh, my claim is that we can abstract away from the from the mechanism behind the forces right. and just focus on the forces. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So, but then it still mm-hmm. r- remains to be seen how that force space is exactly structured. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now, now so now we've well, action. it depends on the on the parts of the of the acting individual, the acting object. I mean, mm-hmm. how many force generators mm-hmm. there are and how they are related, like, like our muscles in our body, right. for instance, which but, is complicated. But, but it's interesting, right? If you take mm-hmm. the car example and let's say um, ourselves you know, motoring around if you want, or navigating the world, you can indeed, and I mean, at some, at an abstract, more Cartesian level description, you say, okay, I'm changing my position in space. And that's how, that's the level where these forces act. And I don't really care whether the wheels are turning or the legs are moving, right? So this, mm-hmm. this would make that point about yeah. abstraction. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so then, but, so now we, we have an idea of conceptual space, how we can use this to, to understand action or describe, represent action, heavily relying on, let's say, a, a transformation of action in the real world to an internal sense of force, if you want. Mm. Yeah? But now you also elaborated uh, the same framework towards the notion of an event, mm. right? Which is rather critical in how we deal with the world because yep, yep. we don't only have dynamics, we also have an and, event. So and I, have, it- I have not been able to find very many cognitive theories of events. There are lots mm-hmm. of philosophical theories, but uh-huh. if, if we think about the cognitive, I mean, the, the most naive description of an event is something happens to something. Mm-hmm. And then this something I, I, I call a patient. This is what is in the focus of the, of the event. And then there is something that causes a change. And there is a result of this. I mean, the, well, in most cases, that something happens. Mm-hmm. So I, I divide an event into two vectors, one describing the, 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 uh, 
forces that apply to the patient and the other vector describing the change in the patient. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the change is null, but it's still, uh, it can be a state. But, uh, so my basic model of, of an event are two vectors, one force vector, one result vector mm -hmm. acting on a patient. Mm -hmm. Very often there is an agent generating the force vector involved in the event, but that need not be. It can mm -hmm. be just gravitation or some other uh, non non object generating force right but now now so so mm -hmm. this is this is nice right so we have the notion of event and we have decomposed it in let's say uh, an agent and a patient which let's say are some some core entities yep. who are <coughs> sort of uh, physically present defining the event yeah and then we have exchanges between them which are the forces and these are the two vectors right so we have a cause and effect yeah um so but are these is that really the minimal description of an event we might have events where there's no agent that is causing anything. No, yeah, the minimal is, is a patient and, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and the force and the result vector. That's a, this is my hypothesis. I mean, this is a, mm -hmm. a theory and, and there has some, some consequences uh, in, in how we perceive mm -hmm. actions, for instance. I mean, we would be very surprised uh, if something happens without the cause. I mean, that's the Kantian, Kantian notion again. I mean, if we see something happening, we presume that there is some kind of, of action pattern going on in, 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 mm -hmm. in, in behind the screens. Right, um, but if nothing happens, we, yep. we can still describe an event in which, in some sense, nothing happens. Yeah. Well, there are two kinds of nothing happening. Okay. And one is just that not, not, there is no force, and, and there, consequently there is no, no change either, no yeah. result vector. So it's just a state. And yes. that's, a, that's a, an, a special case of an event, a very, fairly boring case of an event. Sure. But then there are also events where there is a force and a counterforce mm -hmm. uh, that balance each other, so still nothing happens. Mm -hmm. uh, so when, when uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing a door and uh, the door doesn't open, I mean, I'm, there I'm, I'm, I'm exerting a force, and the, f the door exerts a counterforce. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing happens, uh, mm -hmm. but there is still a, an interplay of forces, and there mm -hmm. is still an action from my side of pushing the door. But mm -hmm. the counterforce uh, brings out no effect. Okay, but mm -hmm. but if the event is, is let's say more abstract, where we say in 2012 the Summer Olympics happened in London, took place in London, yeah, yeah. right? So does that mean that I would have to decompose that in all sorts of microscopic elements where I can now again recover these forest relationships? In this case, it's a lot of intentionality going on. I mean, lots of people involved in this event and their, their joint intentionality constitutes the creation of this Summer Olympics. It's a very complex mm -hmm. event involving, I mean, a complex f factor of, of mental uh, causes, not mm -hmm. physical causes, generating mm -hmm. uh, this event. I don't know how to analyze this in detail. Okay. I mean, I stick to the more concrete uh, mm -hmm. actions. Right, uh, okay. Uh, no, but, uh, but this is interesting, right? Because this, this, is a, this issue of generalization is a challenge right now oh, for, yes. for oh, the yes. framework. Yeah, right? of so, course it is. I mean, so to, to going up to these more abstract types of events that we talk about that, right. are, that are generated by, by our societal structure, by our interactions mm -hmm. with other people. Right. I mean, I don't really have a good analysis. I mean, mm -hmm. this is the kind of program I have. I, I hope to be able to extend sure. it. But, but I'm, I, I start with the more basic concrete actions where which, invo involve physical sense. forces and so sure. on. Yeah. No, but moreover, mm -hmm. of course, it's sort of an easy game to sort of throw these pot shots at you and say, oh, here, I have an exception. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for yeah, yeah. So and that's, that's, I think, not really the point, right? It's really a point to try to understand where would be, let's say, principled transitions yeah, of, yeah. of the approach. That's why I thought Olympics might be 
sort of abstract enough mm. that that could be challenging. It is. Um, so, but so now, we, so we have um, we we can now decompose, let's say, events in in, an, in a patient. Why did you use the word patient for, let's say, the core object in the, in in the event? Well, that, that's something that undergoes the change, so mm -hmm. to speak. I mean, sometimes the agent is identical with, with the patient. When, sure. I'm, when I'm walking, I'm exerting a force on myself and I'm mm -hmm. changing my own position. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are cases where, where the agent and patient are, are identical. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, in many cases, we can separate them, mm -hmm. or in most cases. Okay, mm -hmm. so is there any psychological or, or neuroscientific grounding for this decomposition of an event? Um, that's a very good question. I, 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 I don't know a very good answer to it yet. Okay. I mean, there are some people who are speculating about, about I mean, we have, we have uh, two, path, two visual pathways in the brain. I mean, the more dorsal is going for the motion patterns. And you can think of that as, as picking out the kinematics. And maybe, I mean, maybe, I don't know if you can find some... Uh, correlates of picking out the forces, mm -hmm. but uh, that, that I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And then you have the more more ventral pathway going uh, to, to object identification, which is mm -hmm. more uh, involved in the static properties of, of, mm -hmm. of, of objects. So you have a little bit of division of the of the forces and, and the objects in it. But I mean, it, that's mm -hmm. on a very rough and general right. scale. I don't know if there is more detailed uh, mm -hmm. knowledge here. But now, so in, in the face of that challenge, and, in some sense, you're using very physical metaphors, right? With force, yeah, cause, yeah. effect. And is that not limiting the framework? Because as soon as we talk about these more, let's say, metaphorical mm -hmm. causes, mm -hmm. um, or about intentions, let's say, um, it, it, it might become confusing if one is thinking about this as a cause, right? If I ask you, like, please, gi please mm -hmm. give me this, this cup of coffee, Peter. Um, to really start to, to think about that in terms of causes can also get very confusing. Because I'm all of mechanism. Oh, I, I, my larynx is doing stuff. Sound pressure waves yeah, yeah. hit your cochlea, etc. Right? And then so, oh, but Peter grew up in this culture mm -hmm. where these words mean certain things. And But it, it sounds like a, a very, very um, unfruitful way to pursue the question. So wouldn't it be more useful to, to say, replace the notion cause and effect to something a bit more neutral? Well, that's what I'm trying to do. I mean, by having these force vectors or result vectors, uh, that's uh, in, okay. in my in my opinion a, a more. It's a way of reducing causes and effects to something that I can describe describe in semi mathematical uh, mm -hmm. models. Okay, mm -hmm. but then force would then be broadened to something like a metaphorical force. Yeah, well, I, as I say, social forces, emotional forces yes. and, uh, are, would be included but in are this. There, are there other concepts we could consider for this? Maybe it's a bit of a boring question, but it's, it, 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 it can lead to so much confusion, right, if we use this these, these physical metaphors. Yeah. So I'm just wondering whether there are, are the candidate concepts for this we could consider or, or really not really I, I don't know i mean i mean some people talk about powers rather than forces social oh, okay. powers and so on mm. i don't know whether that's that's better that or not mm. i mean i don't care very much about the terminology here i mean mm. i care about what kind of models I'm, I'm, okay. I'm using and as we talked about earlier i mean my use of action may not fit with the philosopher's uses mm. of action I, uh, but that's I, not your main concern that's not my main concern <laughs> okay very good so okay so so we got mm. events uh, sorted um, so, but and also, you, you would make the point that this decomposition of events would hold, in in principle, at any level of description. So, so whether I talk about the cup falling from the table, or or me writing a paper, the basic decomposition of agent 
force, patient, and then a resultant yeah. vector or force. Yeah. Would hold. Yeah, that, that's a minimal description. Then many events involve more components. I mean, if I hit something with a hammer and I have the instrument that's between my force exertion and the force that happens to the object I'm hitting, uh, and I can have, uh, when I give, if I give something to you, I mean, there is a physical movement of the cup uh, if, it, mm -hmm. if, if I give you my coffee, but there is also the, the transfer of possession, I mean, which is a much more uh, advanced and, and, and intentional part of, of, the, uh, mm -hmm. of the action. So there are, there are different details or different components you can mm -hmm. add in, in, a, in an event description. Right. But the basic ones are the two vectors and the patient. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I would say that this is a cognitive theory, so that uh, these parts appear in all our representations of theories. Mm -hmm. Then you can go down on finer details and add more components, for, depending on what, mm -hmm. what level of description you're aiming for. Right. Yeah. So, but now, if we if we decompose events in these terms, is you could imagine that we could expose humans to let's say event descriptions. We put them in a scanner, fMRI, and we see which areas of the brain light up, and then hopefully you see four different areas where you, yeah. where you can say, yeah. okay, agent and two forces. And is there anything like that? I, I, I think so. I mean, people have been looking at how verbs are represented in the brain, and we are getting into verbs now. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would look for differentiations between these force vectors and, and the result vectors. If the brain uh, lights up in different areas, depending on whether you talk about the causes or whether you talk about the effects. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if we can find any clear results. I've taken part in a small experiment on this where there are some some indication that we can make such a division. But there is a lot of research to do on this. I mm -hmm. mean, what happens and does the brain distinguish between causes and effects in, 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 in its analysis? That's, mm -hmm. for me, a very interesting question, but I don't, I don't know anything about okay. uh, the, the answer. Well, actually, mm -hmm. very basic learning mechanisms like classical conditioning have mm -hmm. been interpreted in terms of the brain extracting cause-effect relationships from the yeah. world. Okay. Right? Because you get exposed to, let's say, the tone and there comes the foot shock. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and uh, in some sense, you might interpret that as a causal relationship. That's true, yeah. Right? yeah. So there have been relatively interesting theories about this, and that would be very consistent with what you're, what okay. you're proposing. Okay, but yeah? that's an error I don't know very much about. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so indeed, but now you mentioned language, because this, <coughs> I think, is sort of, if you want, the, the, the long-term ambition of this program is also really account for language. Yeah, I mean, right? I, that's... that's I shouldn't say the main application, but the application I'm working on right now. But why do you call it an application? Uh, because I, I, I use this model. I mean, it's a model. I can use it to analyze causes and effects, how we perceive causes and effects. I can use it to analyze uh, how we use verbs. I can maybe use it mm -hmm. to analyze social interaction. I don't mm -hmm. know what. But at the moment, I'm focusing on how this maps onto our understanding of language. Mm -hmm. Okay. But, but, but before we go to language, there's an interesting implication of that, no? Because then you're saying, well, from a cognitive perspective, there's a core meaning system organized in conceptual spaces. And this meaning system is sort of modality independent, and now it can be expressed in language. It can be used in how we interpret the world through haptics, vision, blah, blah, blah. But this is like an independent meaning module. Yes, well, independent meaning, but it, it is a kind of core module. I mean, uh, the, mm -hmm. the event representation, I think, would be at the core of our understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. And it depends on, on I mean, 
um, you can have it to analyze perception. You see, you perceive an event, but you can also use it as a basis for formulating a linguistic expression. You can right. use it for, for different things. And, and as you say, I mean, it's, it's modality independent. That I mean, I don't assume a separate module for, for language semantics mm -hmm. and another module for per representing perceptual concepts. I mean, for me, they are, they right. are on, on the same yeah, but system. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. A really important consequence is I can also, I can use this meaning system to also make predictions. Oh, yes. And mm -hmm. I can, because it's modality independent, I can make cross-modal predictions. Yes. Right? So, so I think that... that and, and, and these cross-modal predictions show up in language in terms of metaphors. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Right, exactly. And, and they show up in, in body movement, in how mm -hmm. we gesture or how we mimic things or right. stuff like that. Okay, uh, so, so, so given that mm -hmm. we we're both very enthusiastic about this program... How far did you get in accounting for language with it? Um, I'm, well, not to the details. I mean, <laughs> I've got into some of the rough stuff. Mm -hmm. And if I start at the very basic uh, level, I mean, all languages, I mean, the, the syntactic structures of, of languages are quite different. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, all languages seem to have noun phrases and verb phrases. I mean, that's the, the basic thing you can have. Mm -hmm. And that division, I mean, linguists never explain why noun phrases and verb phrases exist. I mean, why are these the basic building components of language? They mm -hmm. are taken for granted. Now, given the model of, of uh, events that I have presented, noun phrases map onto agents and patients. Mm -hmm. pri primarily, they might map onto instruments and other stuff. But basic uses of noun phrases is to denote agents and patients. And different basic uses of verb phrases is to denote uh, force vectors and mm -hmm. result vectors. Mm -hmm. So this division between the two, ob two objects and the two vectors maps onto the division between mm -hmm. noun phrases and verb phrases. Right. Okay, so, but how clean is that mapping? Um, I don't know how clean it is, but mm -hmm. if, it, if it serves as a grounding for learning language, mm -hmm. and this is, I mean, I'm not, I don't think I can explain all features of, of human, uh, the semantics of a human language, because that's, that, that's very rich. Mm -hmm. But if it can say something about the general principles of how the semantics is structured, I can use that to explain how children can learn a language. Mm -hmm. Because you need, I mean, the data you get as a child is not very rich. You need some kind of constraints. Mm -hmm. And um, these event structures, if they are, if my model of, of the cognitive representations of events are, are, are correct, they, they give you a structure that constrains what, what words can refer to. I mean, mm -hmm. I make this basic distinction between noun, noun phrases and verb phrases. Mm -hmm. yeah. But now, of a verb, you said, look, a verb is essentially a convex region, a mm -hmm. convex region in a single domain. Yeah. Right? So... That, that seems a rather strong statement. Yeah, I mean, before we get to that, I mean, let me start by saying that a verb mm -hmm. means either, either refers to the force vector yeah. or it refers to the result vector. That's right. You don't have a single verb. I mean, you can have compo compositions with prepositions and stuff like that mm -hmm. where you get. But the root of a verb uh, is my is my hypothesis it refers to either the force vectors and these verbs are what we call manner verbs how you do things you hit things you pull and you push mm -hmm. and then you have verbs that refer to the result vector and these are well results like painting or heating mm -hmm. or, or yeah whatever mm -hmm. opening mm -hmm. yeah, but wait the, if it's a verb it always requires an agent oh. um, but if it's an agent it it requires that um, but look, if we have to, the patient now, and the patient undergoes a change, let's say uh, you, you hit my finger with a hammer, my finger turns purple, the result vector is not necessarily 
an action as as I can capture in a verb. No, no. Right. So well, well, t- you say turns purple. I mean, that's uh, you have turning here means, and then you have the color term. So what happens is that turn it means a change or a movement. No, but you agree. <laughs> I could describe it in a way that there's no verb involved. I said you hit that um, now. Yeah, my finger is blue. Well, the property change. Yeah, there's a, a property pro- change. Yeah, there's so, a property change. So yeah. how? how yeah. So how do I? Well, on it, this is not in itself an action of the patient, right? It's no, a no, property no, change. No. Yeah, it's a property change, but it's, that's the result vector, and okay. it's described. I mean, you can say turns red, turns purple. You can say becomes purple. We have those those verbs that help us in in saying that there is a change in, in a property, and purple is a property word. Mm-hmm. But you're saying it's going from some other color into the region of mm-hmm. purple. So there is a change mm-hmm. in the in the result. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the result vector is going from some region into the purple region. Mm-hmm. That's the result okay. uh, vector. Yeah, so what I was after, uh, was just trying to understand whether you're saying verbs are describe change or verbs describe action. No, no, there, there, there are two kinds. There are, two, there are verbs that describe actions. These are the uh, the, the manner verbs. Mm-hmm. And then there are verbs that describe changes. Mm-hmm. And I say there is a fairly tight division between yeah, them. There, there are some verbs that can be used for both topics, but in a particular sentence, they use either to describe the no, the, man, the manner, the force vector. Right, or but, the, but this is, uh, I was trying to understand, let's say, the overlap between these two domains, because you could say, look, you lift a hammer and now the patient ran away. So now I'm acting um so i'm not turning blue anymore mm. right so so how how unique is that mapping of these two kinds of verbs to either the the, the cause or the effect um i would say it's fairly i mean there, of course there there is a particular action can have very many different outcomes, as you say, I mean, they, depending on the situation and on the, on the context. But we don't have verbs that summarize causes and effects. I mean, this is, uh, this is my constraint on how we learn these verbs. They either express the cause, I mean, the force vector, or the, or the effect of, of, of an event. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's, that's a kind of cognitive prediction here. Mm-hmm. But, so, but, but, for instance, you could be running towards me and I'm running away. So we're both running. Yeah. The agent and the patient are both running. So the verb we use to, to now describe the cause and effect is the same. Yeah. Is that a problem? Uh, no, because, okay. you, because you use the preposition away. All right. Which introduces a, a, a result uh, into the run away is, is mm-hmm. uh, you, you modify the, the uh, manner by running away that introduces a change in space, mm-hmm. which is a result vector. By having this preposition added to running, you're changing it from a manner vector mm-hmm. to a result vector. OK, but that could also say Peter's running and Paul is running. Yeah, but then you don't have it as a cause and effect. Then you have okay. To <laughs> <laughs> okay, but then, then it's but, two but events. Then it's do, two events. But you mm-hmm. did bring in the proposition now, so then it, mm-hmm. it becomes, let's say, a conglomerate. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. not only the verb anymore. No, no, no. It's it's. A, I mean, there, there has to be at least one vector and one one uh, agent or patient. I mean, so that's the noun phrase and the verb phrase are the minimal elements of, of an event description. Okay. Okay. So it's a phrase, mm-hmm. it's not just a single verb. No, no, no. Okay. It can. It can. I mean, then you add grammar, but I mean, you sure. uh, and, and all kinds of compositions of descriptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what is denoted by these composite uh, expressions are are agents and patients. Okay, so now we have these two kinds of verbs. And um, then f- from that, you came with, with a prediction, if you want, because, okay, if I learn, look at that from the perspective of the conceptual space, it means that if every verb is indeed in the convex region, 
they cannot sort of be in two disjoint regions at the same time. And therefore, let's say cause and effect verbs, there are no occurrences of verbs that are both cause and effect. No, and, and, and as a matter of fact, you can make it even stronger because among the result verbs, they only refer to a single domain. So when mm. you're heating something, you're changing the temperature. When you're moving something, you're changing the spatial location. Mm -hmm. And when you're painting something, you're changing the color domain. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I had previously a theory uh, about adjectives that say that adjectives refer to regions in single domains. So you have the color words, the mm -hmm. color adjectives that refer to the color space, you have the temperature, hot and cold, I refer to temperature, and so on. Mm -hmm. Now I'm generalizing this single domain hypothesis also to verbs. Mm -hmm. And I'm, 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 I, there are lots of p potential counterexamples. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how, how well this hypothesis will hold up. Uh -huh. But if it does, it shows a very nice parallel between mm -hmm. the, object, the structure of adjectives and the structure of verbs, right. which would be nice from a cognitive point of view. But, <laughs> From the, point of of, from, the, from the point of view of cognitive economy, I should right. say. Yeah. Uh, Lauren, you have some wiggle mm -hmm. space, right? Because you have a free parameter in your model, which is the, the domain itself. Okay, so, that, so the point is, even if you find counterexamples, yeah. they raise interesting questions about really the structuring of these domains. Well, I'm, I'm saying that, at least that, the same domains apply to adjectives that apply to, mm -hmm. to verbs. And we find right. these nice mappings between, between movement verbs and change and position ver adjectives and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So, but, mm -hmm. but now, but now one, one problem I, I had with that prediction is that I could also argue, well, look, yeah, sure thing, this is not a big surprise, because... Let's say, in general, words used in a language that are ambiguous and confusing will just die out because yep. they don't help from a, for for in, term, in pragmatical terms. Yep. So in that sense, could I say, well, this is like a, this is this is um, a truism. Because of course, words words in our language are only there that, because they're not ambiguous. Yeah, uh, I would say it's well. You can think of it as a truth, but but um, the reason is that if you have two complicated words, I mean words with two complicated semantics, they would not be very, be, would be very difficult to learn, mm -hmm. and 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 has, having them sorted up into referring to a single domain makes them easier to learn. Mm -hmm. and I think that this is a good constraint on. Uh, that explains how children can pick up language so quickly as they do. I mean, mm -hmm. that's one of the constraints, and it's not uh, the so, only one. But, but your uh, prediction is that language have evolved the way they did, also to facilitate learnability. Le oh yes, oh yes, and. Um, I mean, there, there are these famous Chomsky arguments of the pos pos paucity of the data. I mean, we don't get enough data. To, we have to have in, innate yeah. uh, structures. I don't think that's a very strong argument because he only considers syntax in his uh, studies. Right. If you look at the interplay between perception and, and, and language, and as I've been doing in my, uh, in my studies of actions and events, I mean, you, you can generate a lot more constraints mm -hmm. on learning. And that's what, what, what mm -hmm. one of my aims is, to identify these constraints mm -hmm. on on, on on uh, how, uh, how the semantics of words right. are, are, are structures. Yeah, but it's interesting about this argument about the poverty of the stimulus originating in the 1950s, um, that in some sense the data is still out there. I mean, the data has not really been conclusively uh, you know, um, summarized in some way. That indeed the, the, the sensory stimuli the growing child is exposed to are, is that restricted or un or not structured enough to allow learnability. But then what kind of data do you have to support your position here? 
No, I mean, the, the data I have comes from the way, the, to the extent I can confirm my, my models here. Mm-hmm. That I mean, I can I have to look at all the, for instance, the verbs. I mean, to see whether this classification between uh, manner verbs and result verbs hold water. And that's a, a hot topic in linguistics mm-hmm. uh, 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 at the moment. And if it does, I mean, then we have some data showing that there is this kind of division of, of meanings in, mm-hmm. in, in verbs. And that division of meanings would help me, would generate a constraint that can help me in explaining why kids can learn language mm-hmm. so, so easily. Okay, but mm-hmm. that would mean that the structuring of the conceptual space of language should then coincide with the progression of language learning. Uh, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. there, there, that's a give-and-take uh, relation, right. yeah. So how, but how do you really see that feedback mechanism? Because there's some, there must be some bootstrapping in this, right? Because the argument is always, look, if it's just feed-forward yep. and you grab it from the world, it's not enough. No. So what what are these key rules that would help the bootstrapping in this? Have you, do you have an idea about that? I, I have thought a little bit about the ordering in which you learn do, domains as a child. I mean, you learn the shape of objects quite early. You interact with things with your hands and your mouth and, and so on. Uh, color comes perhaps later. You learn about spatial relations. But then there are lots of spaces where you only learn things later. And I looked a little bit at child data on, on when certain domains are, are, are learned. Mm-hmm. So color and shape comes very early but for instance all the all the um, uh, domains related to knowledge I mean knowing believing and uh, lying and so on children normally don't learn them until they're about three or four years old mm-hmm. uh, so that's a more ad- abstract domain that that comes later mm-hmm. or uh, take economic terms I mean uh, like a loan or a uh, inflation to take mm-hmm. a tough word I mean you can't teach it a child that uh, bailout <laughs> you can't because for, for kids money are coins and, and bills mm-hmm. uh, and they don't know about this abstract space of economic right. relations uh, that's something that they learn much later so um, my idea of uh, some kind of progression of domains uh, mm-hmm. would help all it would be another constraint on on language mm-hmm. learning okay. some domains come earlier in their development and then we via uh, learning a language via being part of a culture you learn further mm-hmm. more okay, abstract but, domains but then your prediction is that there must be a hierarchy of conceptual spaces a hierarchy of domains yes of domains yeah yeah, yeah. okay and um, would that hierarchy let's say also be an explosion in dimensionality or not necessarily? Mm, well, each new domain adds a dimension, so it's it's bringing out more dimensions. Yeah, yes, but, it, but it could also collapse dimensions of preceding domains, right? Because uh, It could, yeah, but uh, yeah. No, I, I think in general our minds are, are growing in, in, in the number of dimensions we are using. Okay, Yeah. all right. So so then the um, you had a number of uh, predictions, mm-hmm. if you want, about... Um, Verbs, right? So, for instance, that that similarities in, in verb meaning, uh, or the subcategories of verbs, or, or the subregions, mm-hmm. like the subregions in the notion of walking. Yeah. Right. So, so what are these predictions exactly? Well, we we categorize. I mean, one idea behind conceptual spaces is that similarity plays a great role in in uh, categorization. So we categorize. Uh, colors as yellow because they are similar uh, mm-hmm. in, 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 our, in our perception. And we categorize actions because they are, they are similar in our perception. So I would say that running is very much similar to wa- walking or more similar to walking than running is to, to uh, 
flying. Flying, for mm. instance, yeah, that's a good example. Mm. And, and we, we use these similar. I mean, we can, I don't have a measure of distance between force patterns, but somehow we, the force pattern of, of running is more similar, closer to that of, of walking than mm -hmm. it is to flying. And we use these similarities when we judge the, the uh, similarities between verb meanings. And also, if you can generalize, I mean, take walk again. There are a number of subdivisions of walking. You can be limping, you can be marching, you can be strutting, strutting, and I mean, there are lots of kinds of walking. But they all fall under the general notion of the walking domain of mm -hmm. possible walking uh, patterns, uh, force patterns. But the the subdivisions then are subregions of mm -hmm. this uh, action space. Right, and that would then coincide with, say, our ability to distinguish these yeah, movement yeah. patterns. Yeah, I mean, this is just like we have subdivisions of nouns. I mean, you can have an animal, a dog, a, a terrier. I mean, that's you have this hierarchy. We have the same similar hierarchy right. of action representations. Okay, so. and then um, so then you would also, but you also had, let's say, a more detailed decomposition of, let's say, uh, how how verbs translate to action in in the world because. Um, if, if we take the example of push that you that you talked about, to to push an object in itself is not necessarily the complete story, right? Because in the result vector, different things can happen. Yeah. Right. So, so does that mean I also have to think about then subcategories or no? Let's say uh, a decomposition of push into different kinds of resultant. Uh, vectors or not? You must make a distinction between what the verb represents and the e event you're describing mm -hmm. because the verb represents a force vector. Pushing is a force vector normally uh, horizontally towards a, a, an object. But then the, the, the object may may be stuck or uh, mm -hmm. may be heavy or so nothing happens. Um, mm -hmm. But that's part of the event. I mean, that's the result vector. But the, the, the push it as it as the verb only concerns the the, the right. force vector, and the result may be a complicated mm -hmm. story depending on how the how the world uh, looks. But like. but how do I segment this now? Because imagine, so you push me, and I'm pushing you back. Yeah. So I'm I'm your patient, and you're my patient. Yeah. Right? Then there are two events. Okay, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So but but so the segmentation of let's say um, real world events, right? Um, this segmentation would fall along the lines of the forces and how they're exchanged. Yeah. And, but would that de decomposition be unambiguous? No, not necessarily. Does it I need mean, to yeah, be yeah, unambiguous? Yeah. Does it need to be unambiguous? Uh, you can have different levels of description of events. I, mm -hmm. mean, uh, I mean, if you take wrestling, I mean, there is a continuous exchange of forces. Right, exactly. Uh, and, but we still generalize this general pattern, this general pattern of two people uh, pushing against mm -hmm. or pulling against each other as a, a general type of interaction. So that's a high-level description. Then, of course, I can have a, a more detailed description of a, of a wrestling, wrestling match. I can have, I'm bending your knee or bending your arm or pushing there or mm -hmm. lifting there or whatever. I mean, there are lots of sub-events mm -hmm. in, in this uh, global event. But does that, is the prediction of this possibly that if the forces cancel each other out or if the roles of patients and agents cancel each other out, that that is a, a necessary a reason to step to a next level of abstraction. No, no, no. I mean, it's just no. when, when, as when you're describing a, a, a scene around you, you can say, oh, well, I'm in a room. But you, I can also say I'm in a room with this and that pieces mm -hmm. of furniture. I mean, I can go down and, 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 and talk about uh, the details. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a level of, of attention we have right. on, on a particular, oh. uh, particular situation. Okay. Mm -hmm. So 
So now you, you came a long way with the conceptual spaces approach to understand language, right? So mm -hmm. in some sense you're saying nouns are categories, yep. right? Adjectives are properties. Um, prepositions are, are force and spatial relations, yeah. so sort of relationships. Yeah. Are, yeah. Um, verbs now are forces and results, causes yeah. and effects. And ve vectors, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And then adverbs are like modifying, modifying vectors. Yeah. What would that exactly mean? In well, this I, I, if 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 I push something, yeah. I mean, I'm asserting a vector, but I'm not saying very much about how strongly I push. I mean, the, the strength. If I say I push strongly, mm -hmm. I'm saying that my my the vector I'm exerting belongs to the uh, well, uh, with stronger forces, I exert more force. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 like a multiplier or a mm -hmm. modifier of a vector. Okay. Or or I can mm -hmm. change the the direction. I say I push downwards. That mm -hmm. means I'm I'm, I'm saying um, uh, it's changing the direction right. of the pushing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, but so, so in that sense, you have a very complete, if you want, decomposition of this very basic notion of an event, right, in the atoms of language. And then your proposal is that, that sentences as such, as, 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 a, as a unit, capture the event. Yep. Right? Yep. But now to go from these linguistic atoms to a sentence, we need grammar. Right? Not necessarily. I mean, we okay. can communicate without grammar quite a lot. I mean, okay. there is this what, thing that's called proto-language. That mm -hmm. is just meaning components without any grammar. Mm -hmm. I think grammar is needed to disambiguate uh, a, a lot of things here. Mm -hmm. I mean, in English, for instance, there are a lot of words that can mean either a verb uh, or a... a um, uh, an object. I like hammer. I mean, hammer is a verb or it can be an, an object. And the word in isolation doesn't tell you what what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you put it in a context and add syntactic markers, uh, uh, tenses or uh, third person markers or whatever, um, then you can see whether it's a noun or, or a verb. So mm -hmm. syntax for me is, is, is a tool for, to disambiguate mm -hmm. uh, the uses of mm -hmm. words. And then syntax is another constraint on how to learn a language because mm -hmm. the syntactic markers will help a, a child to see whether we're talking about a, 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 an action or we're talking about an object. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but what I find surprising, you, uh, what I find surprising about this and that's probably because you're more aware about the, the intricacies of language. But I would expect that you would have said something like, well, I have my basic decomposition of an event. I have an agent. I have my two vectors and I have a patient. It's a cause and effect. And it's, it's that order of an agent cause and effect on the patient. It's that order that translates to syntax. Um, no. Not necessarily. Why because, not? Because, because, but, because there is an... an, 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 an event or an element in between there is a there is an event but there is also you looking at the event mm -hmm. and you focusing on something mm -hmm. i mean you're you're looking at what the agent is doing or you're looking at what the patient is doing that two different foci on 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 the event and that attention focusing mm -hmm. shows up in language so in in in, in what's <clears throat> large class of languages the subject turns out to be the thing you're focusing on. Mm -hmm. So if I say that I'm, I'm hitting you, I'm, I'm fo focusing on me doing the action, but if I'm saying you are being hit, I'm, I'm focusing on, on what's happening to mm -hmm. you. I'm making you the, the, the subject. Mm -hmm. and, and in both cases, I'm the patient, I'm the agent, you're the, you're mm -hmm. the patient. So, so the, what becomes the subject of a sentence is determined by what is the, the mm -hmm. focus of attention mm -hmm. on, on, on the event. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but look, exactly this example, I think, is a good one. I mean, y you might have reached a stage in this discussion that you want to hit me, but still we say Peter is hitting Paul. Yeah. So first we have the agent, then we have the cause, and then we have the patient. And if it's the other way around, we say Paul is hitting Peter. So it's that ordering in the language that is rather directly correlated with the ordering of your event decomposition. Um, not, no, not necessarily. No? I mean, first of all, there are all kinds of orderings between subject, object, and verb in, in, in languages. So that, that doesn't. But I think the, the most important thing is just what is your focus of attention? Mm -hmm. That's what determines the ordering. Because the, the, first, the, the thing most focused on comes mm -hmm. first. Um, yeah, but isn't that now a tricky... Uh, a tricky direction to take because now you bring in for the first time let's say a point of view and you say dependent on the point of view you you reorganize the conceptual space you no, yeah okay you're, or you reorganize yeah. the event structure yeah, yeah. but it shouldn't really matter because independent of the point of view the event structure always has no. the agent the cause the patient and the event no you don't reorganize it you, you focus on it and then you turn this focusing into a linguistic expression yeah, so this is a this is a, a, an intermediary step between your event perception mm -hmm. and how you describe it mm -hmm. and, and between the, the okay. your perception there is the focusing of attention and that determines mm -hmm. partly how you uh, assign uh, syntactic roles to the to the uh, okay so, parts so of this the is interesting right so now so mm -hmm. this, this i find this interesting because on the one hand you're saying look from if you want a, a cognitive representational perspective i can tell you how an event is represented is decomposed yeah so yeah. there we go we have the agent yeah. and our cause the patient sure. effect then you say those components i can map on the components of language yep okay yeah so we're still doing fine so okay. this is like we have we have our conceptual space yep. the domains and there, there we go and we map this to let's say components of language and then now we want to make a sentence and you're saying the the whole sentence describes the whole event. No, I'm not saying that. Oh. I'm, I'm saying the sentence describes an aspect of an event. You have to pick okay. out a certain aspect okay. of an event. And you can start very basically with a subject and, 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 and a verb. But then you can add prepositional phrases, you can add modifiers, mm -hmm. you can add... I mean, I, I can say that I hit you, but I can mm -hmm. say I hit you strongly with a hammer. I hit you strongly with a hammer so the, your your eyes became blue and, and so mm -hmm. on. I can, I can expand uh, the description of the event by mm -hmm. adding more and more parts of the mm -hmm. uh, event. So but that means that I have now a transformation. I have to look at some transformation that goes from, let's say, a neutral mapping into a conceptual space of an event, yeah. as it is in the outside world. Yeah. Then I want to translate this to language, and for that I have to make a transformation. And this transformation depends on the point of view. Well, yeah, you make a selection, basically. Right. Yeah. But, and, now, and, but uh, in making this selection, I still map it into your basic yeah. event structure. Yeah. yeah. No? Yes. And so, to, and to map that basic event structure in language, I still face the same problem, which means there's a, there's an agent, a cause, a patient, yeah. and an effect. I mean, the, the event structure will constrain language. It will not determine what you say, but it will constrain the structure of your language. But then, where's the magic of coming in for of the syntax? Because still, this is how I have to map it to my sentence. Mm, yeah, uh, but I mean, of course, uh, as I said you have to have some way of disambiguating the, the role. So you have to decide, where, know whether uh, something is a verb or, or, or a noun, for instance, or whether something is, is talking about spatial relations or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you, you can do with a lot with proto-language, without uh, syntax. Mm -hmm. uh, and and, and uh, when children are learning language, they start mm -hmm. with the proto-language. The, the, the grammar comes, comes uh, mm -hmm. most of the grammar comes much later. Uh, right. And, uh, and if you start communicating in another foreign language, you start 
taught without the syntax. I mm-hmm. mean, you you have a vocabulary and you try your best. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Um, so I mean, this is the proto language structure of of of, of communication. Mm-hmm. For me, syntax is just a tool for helping us in getting more. Uh, better understanding how you made the transformation for the mm-hmm. event description to the to the linguistic right. expression. Okay. Uh, yeah. So so Peter to um, to wrap up, I have, I have two questions. So I mean, you you you've gone around in this sort of very cognitive view on on the mind, if you want, and its different capabilities, uh, proposing this notion of of cognitive of uh, of conceptual spaces um, for a while now, looking at its consequences, and that yeah. seems to be panning out rather well. So what is what would be Peter's law that we have to adhere to in, in trying to understand the mind? Um, well, one important thing is that our mind divides information into domains. Mm-hmm. That's uh, for me. I mean, I don't re- I don't have a crisp definition of what is a domain, but I can give you examples. And this domain structure. Uh, shows up in a lot of a lot of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's one one of the big messages I have. Uh, okay. Yeah. And then second one is uh, five years from now I'm going to go visit you in Lund, and say, okay, you gave me this prediction five years ago, and now I want to know whether it really happened. So yeah. what's what's the one prediction you feel most passionate about today? A prediction, testable prediction. That okay. You, that uh, you're gonna that you're gonna see tested and validated five years from now. I, I have a lot of smaller predictions. I mean, I have predictions about how how the, the semantics of children develop. I mean, I can tell you about the order of adjectives that we learn, for instance. Uh-huh. I have predictions about what will be easy to teach to a robot and, and, and more difficult to teach in mm-hmm. terms of verbs. Uh, give me uh, the give so, me the most exciting one. <laughs> Um, with the highest chance of failure. And I haven't thought about formulating. Okay, I mean, I, yeah, okay, the, the highest rate of failure is that nouns in general involve several domains. I mean, we talk about dogs, they have, have sounds and smells and sizes mm-hmm. and shapes and whatnot. Other words, adjectives, prepositions, verbs, normally refer to single domains. Mm-hmm. So if I can validate this uh, right. this uh, hypothesis, I will have a fairly strong toolbox to generate further, more detailed predictions about mm-hmm. how, how language works. Okay. So, I mean, I have this kind of program of, of uh, extending this single domain hypothesis to mm-hmm. different word classes. Right. That's a fairly general uh, exactly. uh, that, that, hypothesis. That's a good one. And if that works out, I... I, uh, I You'll yeah, be very pleased. I will be very pleased, yes. <laughs> okay, Peter Gardefors, yeah. thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you very much. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomatics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening. Thank you.